It's simple to ask. It's not very simple to answer. I hope it's not too simple. Question for you tonight. I, as I told you last week, we're going to be looking at the attributes of God. This is not going to be typical of the weeks to come because we're going to be really looking at narrative passages a lot more uh, and asking uh, sort of a question and answer where we're trying to solve questions along the way, theological questions that come up that I believe can be answered better than we have historically done so because we haven't done so from the premise that God is sovereign enough. And that means that God does, and we'll talk about that maybe tonight a little bit. But I'm going to start off tonight by asking you a question that you might say seems a little absurd. Why are we starting there? Um, But I think it's to understand the attributes of God, we have to do this. And I'm going to let you take some time because you haven't had an opportunity to hear this question, maybe to respond. Um, My question is, who is God? I'm not really looking for a name. I'm really looking for a definition. Can you define God. Who or what is he? You can't, I don't need just one word. You can give me a definition. Definitions can be longer than the word itself. And so who is or what is, if that helps you, God? All right, the creator of everything. All right, very good. Um, That's actually something God does. So your definition of God is based upon something he has done. Was he, what was he before he created anything? So that's his eternality, okay? There was, there never was, but you haven't defined it. You can't use God in the definition of God. That's a rule of defining. You can't use the word to define the word. All right, so I am is in the narrative there in Exodus, and that uh, is one of the key things, I think, is self-existing one that would involve the idea that he pre-existed everything and that he is not dependent upon anything for his existence, and so he is the pre-existent something. The pre-existent what? What is God? Is God everything? Okay, so is that chair part of God? Okay, he made substance, but the question is, see, because this is pantheism, that everything is God, and therefore if I commune with nature, I'm communing with God. If I'm communing with a child, I'm communing with God, and then we become part of God too. (laughs) Okay, so now we have the triunity, and he's a triune God, but we still haven't gotten to the fact of what is God? All right, he's a being. What is a being? Or divine just is another word for deity. Divine is God, right? So he's a being. What is a being? Something that exists. So is the chair a being? Is this a being? Okay, When you say the word being, you're talking about a living thing. So you believe that God is alive. 
So he's a living being that preexisted. He's a preexistent living being. Okay? Um, what do we call living beings? <laughs> All right, thank you. Personhood. He is a person. Self-existing, living being or person. Okay? And what does personhood entail? Personhood doesn't mean human. Personhood really means of what it, uh, of a distinct from the animal kingdom. So personhood uh, talks about not just intellect, emotion, and will. We're going to talk about what makes a person non-animal um, in, in weeks to come. That's going to be a focus of several weeks that we're going to talk about. Um, what did God share with us? Well, he shared with us something of his person that he did not share with the animal kingdom, and that's why we are persons and animals are not persons. Okay? Um, I know you treat them like they are. You give them names, and you consider them part of your family, and, and some people treat them like their own kids or grandkids, uh, but they are not persons. They are animals, and they're delicious. Okay? <laughs> um, I don't know if persons are delicious. They probably are too, but um, depends on how you fix it, right? And so we understand there's a distinction. So when we call God a living being, you are saying that he has personhood. That is, he is distinct from creatures, and there's something... Uh, about him being a living being, because technically a cow is a living being, right? Because it breathes. But it is the personhood that distinguishes this class. And so somehow our being in the image of God, we're going to talk about a lot later, um, is somehow being able us to share in personhood. And so, this is a really important thing. So, any other contribution you want to make to this definition of God, you have a I'm going to say not only pre-existing, but self-existing, self-existing living person. Anything else you want to contribute to that definition? Again, we're going back to his activity, okay? Do you define yourself by, most men define themselves by their activity. I'm an electrician, I'm an engineer, I'm a whatever. Okay, so we, we tend to do that often, but, or we define ourselves by relationship, right? I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a wife, whatever. Um, and so we often define ourselves, but if I, we're going to talk about defining humanity, what, is, what does it mean to be human, which is different than what it means to be a, a sheep, a goat, a cow, a fish, a bird, things like that. And so... We're going to talk about that, but we want to first define who or what is God. Um, so the Bible gives us several God is blank statements, does, he, does it not? Okay, can you give me some of those? God is holy. Do you know where that's found? It's in the Bible. Yeah, I was asking for where in the Bible? Where? Well, that's the Lord is one. Lord, he is God, right? 
So now we have an identity, a name, title, the Lord, he is God. Isaiah talks about holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Okay. In Exodus, the Lord is holy. Holiness is to the Lord is, is set aside for the priest, but the Lord is holy. Okay. What else does it say? God is love. Right? So we have this statement, God is love. Now, is this a definitive statement telling you that everything that's loving is God? No, those are not defining statements. What are they? We'll keep going. Think about that for a minute. What other statements do we have in the Bible? God is righteous, righteousness. Bible says, excuse me, God is just. God is a spirit. Now that starts to be a little more defining, right? God is a spirit, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So does God have corporeal, per, corporeal a body? Does God have a body? That's a trick question. He does now. Did God have a body? No, he is a spirit. Okay, God is a spirit. Jesus says that. You must worship him in spirit and truth. And so, does personhood require a body? No, because God defines personhood. We don't define personhood. We were, personhood was shared with us from God. And so, that is, uh, apparently a body is not required to be a person. It is to be a human, but not to be a person. Your personhood is not tied into your body. And that's why your self-image is, and the world only thinks about, you know, your looks, your weight, your, you know, all of that to define your self-image. And that's foolishness because your personhood is much more substantial than your body. Your body is the least part of the definition of who you are. It is the smallest portion of who you are is your body. Right? In true personhood doesn't even need a body. Jesus or said God is a spirit. That's kind of a defining term that we haven't put in this, this definition that he is a self-existing personal being. That is a spirit. Okay? Um, that's not really an attribute. That's a definition. Okay, do we have any others in God's word where we have a passage, a verse that says, God is, we already got love. God, our God is a jealous God. That's a descriptive concept. So when you look at this, we have some people, they'll say, well, these are definitive statements. The others, these define God. But we've already seen that these, that is, are, are there times that God is more loving than other times. Are there instances, when we talked about this a little bit last week, is there instances where God is less gracious, and grace is a subcategory of his love, or merciful than at other times? Certainly. And we're going to talk about the attributes of God. 
So when we talk about these statements in God's Word, and you can go through and study them, and one of the things I did, I had a Sunday school teacher that understood me and gave me a difficult assignment over the summer. He said, I want you to go through your Bible and underline everything that says God is. I did that as a 10-year-old. I went, and in a summer, boy, I'm just scanning through the Bible. He said, tell me how many God is blanks and write them down. And I made a tabulated list as a 10-year-old went through the Bible in one summer trying to find every God is to see how many there were. Um, I'm a weird kid, you know. But he knew I was a weird kid and knew how to challenge me on that. And, and so that still sticks in my mind. Um, but we have an opportunity. We go through God's Word. It says God is. And we have all these statements. And we say, well, do these define God? Or are we saying that these are attributes that God possesses. Okay, and what I'm contending is that most of these statements are not defining God as that, but rather saying God is, uh, when we say God is love, he becomes the definition of that, not that being the definition of him. Okay, so you can't take your idea of what love means and say, well, that is God. You can't take your idea of what these concepts mean and these principles that God is holy, he's just, merciful, kind, um, he is uh, angry. God is angry? Is God angry? Yeah. Does he hate sin? All right, hates is a verb. It's not the is verb, but it is one of the verbs. God hates. And so God can hate things. Um, and uh, which isn't really the opposite of love. It's, it's um, indifference is the opposite of love. They don't care. But um, when we come to the statements in God's word, we tend to think, well, that defines God. Rather than realizing that, well, what we're really doing is saying God is really communicating that he is these things, but not by definition. That is not who or what he is, they are attributes. So we have the word attributes. Now, in every theological circle, we have, this is one of the main ways in, if you go to Bible College Seminary and you take theology proper class, you will be studying the attributes of God. It will fill up the entire class. There are other ways of studying God, like his names, right? We've done that. Uh, know God by his names, and you can study God that way. You can study God in these other various things. We're going to be studying God from a very different perspective. Um, but I have to take this time to talk about how everyone else studies God. They're studying God through his attributes. And so we have a list of the attributes of God. And what you've been describing me for me in these verses are really not defining God, except for the one is, he is a spirit. Um, not that he is spiritual, but that he is a spirit. That's a defining attribute, or defining term, not an attribute. And so when we talk about what the attributes of God, we are confronted with them. So as a seminarian, I'm in Doctrine 101. I'm right out, you know, my first class. Dr. Crawford is there, and he's 
got a board and it's being written on as fast as he can write. And, and we're trying to learn the attributes of God. And he's like, the problem is we don't know which one we should study first. And he says, that, and then he tries to explain whether they're adverbs, adjectives, uh, you know, what they are and, and how they are all of those at once. And we're going through the attributes of God. And never once do we stop and say, what is God? Or who is he? Now, when people in the Bible ask the question, who are you, Lord? How does God respond to him? I am the... Who are you, Lord? Who asked God who he was in the Bible? Let's just test your knowledge of Scripture. Who are you, Lord? Paul? Okay, on the road to Damascus, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Okay, who else asked that? Moses? Who will I say, what, is, what will I tell people your name? Who are you? Well, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a frequent answer that God gives, who is the Lord? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's defining himself as we would define ourselves by relationship. Okay? Um, we define him by the works he does. These are much more natural and more biblical ways of really defining God is in the way we define ourselves. In relationship, in, uh, in terms of my activity, and we're going to be studying God from that perspective. But the study of attributes is really these statements that God says, this is what I am. Is God eternal? I'm the beginning and the end, and we're going to be studying that. I'm really working, that's the chapter I'm writing right now, so it's going to be way down the road. But uh, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, okay? And the beginning and the end. So is God a time traveler? Is he right now in the past? And the present and the future? And so now we have an attribute that we, and the struggle that theologians have is, Every attribute is to the nth degree. That is, it's perfect and it's, and it's expansive. It, it's, it's, every attribute is that way, and yet they all have to deal with one another. So is God eternal? Well, yes. Is God omniscient? What is omniscience? Help me out. All-knowing. So as God, we use the term omniscient. His omniscient is all-knowing. Uh, does God know all things? You want to say yes really bad, don't you? But you know that very early on in the Bible, there are things he doesn't know. Right? What does he not know when he comes down from heaven into the garden and things have changed? Where are you, Adam? <laughs> Where are you? I, I don't see you anywhere. Does that sound like an omniscient God? All right. I'm just challenging you a little bit here. Is God all-powerful? All right, we have a little song, God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail, according to the verse. Fail what? Fail you? Fail what? What is it that God cannot fail? 
He is all-powerful, and so we say he can do everything but fail. We sing the song, what does it mean? Fail what? Does he have to take a test every quarter? So what is he failing? All right, he can't fail his own word. He can't fail himself. He is the measure of everything, because we said we're, we're going to define everything from him, not have other things define him. He's going to define them. So when we say, what is it that God cannot fail? He cannot fail himself. Okay, so um, we're going to deal with a weird question. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Okay, well, that's, uh, that's one that even atheists will throw at you. Oh, you think God's all power. Can he make a rock so big that he can't fix it? And it's supposed to be uh, a cat gotcha, right? Because if he can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it, that's something he can't do. But if he can make a rock so big that he can't lift it, well, that's something he can't do. Now he can't lift that rock. Um, and again, uh, we're going to answer that question because the real attributes of God resolve that very, very quickly and it's actually kind of a great way to engage people on what God has done for them. And so God is all-powerful, um, and yet we recognize that he doesn't exercise that power. Their unbelief, and that was in Nazareth. Jesus says, I, I can't do very much here because of their unbelief. What? Isn't he the all-powerful God? How can he not do things? And, and even... Remember Jesus outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather you as a hen does her chicks, but you weren't willing. Well, it seems like that's something God wanted to do, but can't do. Does he not have the power? Right? And, and again, um, I can't do this until you do that. And so God subordinates his power, and we're going to talk about that a lot. And so God possesses a lot of attributes when we read through the Bible what the things he does and the way he talks about God, it's really hard to see it consistently there. And, and we're going to go through some of those attributes. So if the attribute defines who God is, and we find times when he doesn't exercise that attribute, does he stop being God? That's the dilemma. And so we say God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so um, we're gonna, that's one of the things we're going to study. How do we deal with the holiness of God? Um, if God exercised holiness without limitation, what would that mean? You wouldn't exist because you're not holy. How does... A holy, holy, holy God come down and walk in the garden with a sinner named Adam and have conversation with him. Because as soon as he's in the presence, he has, his holiness would just destroy you. And that's the concept Isaiah understood. What am I doing here? I am not holy and you are holy and your holiness will destroy me if it is not held in check. That means that holiness isn't really what defines God, but rather that God possesses holiness. 
But we use these attributes of God either individually for the Calvinist, God is sovereign. And you can't have anything in any of your understanding of God's word that violates that because then you're limiting the sovereignty of God. But the problem is, is you're not doing it. What's doing it? What's limiting God? Is it your faith that limits God? I can't do anything because you don't believe. I can't save you because you won't believe in me. So does that mean you're limiting God? It might appear that way. But on what basis do you have the freedom of choice? Based upon him granting you something that's a part of who he is, by definition. He has made you a person. And therefore, what he is has been shared with what, to some degree, at least at one point, and then we grabbed another thing that defines God and made it ours, that he didn't necessarily want it to be ours, but we took it for ourselves. That's the knowledge of good and evil and in the garden. And so God says, I shared some of who I am, what I am with you, the image. We're going to talk a lot about that. But when we talk about who and what God is, um, we think, well, he's all these things. And those attributes, we, we start studying God in the wrong direction. That these attributes define him, and therefore he can't do anything but be sovereign. He can't do anything but be loving. And this is how we approach God. God is love. Well, that means he can't do anything that I interpret as unloving. And so we cannot have a place of eternal torment called hell because that's unloving. How can a loving, we can't, and we are start blaming God. How can a loving God, right? Fill in the blank. Let children suffer. How can a loving God, you know, let a storm wipe out an entire village? How can a loving God, because we come to him and say, well, if he does one unloving act, therefore he is not love. Because we have used love to define God instead of God possessing this attribute called love. So, um, do I have power? I have some power. Okay? Um, I could probably handle, oh, probably 80% of you. If you wanted to wrap, not all at once. <laughs> okay, Gerald, I'd have a hard time with Gerald. Probably some of you that work hard for a living, and I'm old and you're young, um, I'd have a hard time with. Uh, but I, I'm wily, so um, I have some power. Now, um, do I exercise that power to the nth degree all the time? So every time I pick up my child, I just use all my strength I can to hold them as hard as I can with every grip I can, right? That's how I held every one of my newborns when my wife brought them to me. Yes, they would all be dead. So we understand possessing something and using something are two very different things, aren't they? But if I define myself as power, and that defines who I, what I am, and you might say, well, you're eternal God, so you have to have it to the nth degree, and therefore you can never not be powerful, um, means that power now 
defines me instead of me possessing power. You see, attributes are not things that define you. They are things that you possess. And God has perfect self-possession is going to be my contention. That is that he has all these attributes. They are his. They do not make him God at all. So when you say God is holy, we realize, well then how in the world does Satan have access to heaven if, Satan, if God is holy and dwells in inapproachable light? How can we go to Job and find Satan in heaven? How is that possible if God is holy, holy, holy? How? How does God allow? Because God possesses holiness and can control it. He self-possesses it. So, what happened when they um, built the tabernacle, when it was done, and they had sanctified it with blood? What filled it? What filled it? It says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And what happened to everybody in, or not the temple, the tabernacle? What happened to everybody in the tabernacle when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle? They had to run for their lives. Because no one could stand the glory, the Shekinah, we call it the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord. We, they could not stand it. Because it is a penetrating glory that they could not deal with. When we come to Israel at the Mount, base of Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula, not in other one, um, they're there, and what are they afraid of? Do you remember? Because God didn't just talk to Moses. Who would he talk to? He called out from the mountain to the entire nation. And how did they respond? They covered their Oh, no, we're going to die. Because they understood that with God's holiness and power, if it, has not, it had no limitations on it, would destroy them. And that is an accurate understanding of it if these things define God and God doesn't possess them, but they possess him. And so as you go through your Bible and you see all these attributes of God that he, is, that he has eternality, well, does that mean that he is at, in the past right now? Because we, we describe him as being outside of time because he created time, and we're gonna, that's one of the studies we're going to do. And so we're going to have to struggle with that. Well, God seems to be stuck in the current timeline, doesn't he? Is God stuck in this current timeline? That's a question we want to address because there's some crazy teaching out there right now that, that God is doing things in the past still and he's doing things in the future right now and, um, and, and in the present. And that's how they've interpreted that God, uh, I am I'm the one who was and is and is to come. That that's all current. That he is currently in the past and thus God is trans-time. And so again, what have we done? We have taken an attribute of God that he is eternal 
and we have applied it that without exception he must always be eternal. Now we have taken the term eternal and we are now defining God by that attribute because that attribute is dictating something to God, that he can never exist or not exist, I guess would be the right thing to say, that he could ever not exist in some point in time. Currently, does God have to exist right now in the past to be God? That's what they would contend is true. Now I'm just, you're kind of going, um, I'm not saying did God exist in the past? He did, but does he now exist in what is our past, but because he doesn't, past, present, and future doesn't mean anything to him because he's outside of time, is he there right now? And should we pray to him here to change things then? <laughs> the question is, is he still there now? If his attribute defines him, then he must be, if he, something he possesses is something he can control. And this is the distinction of making attributes define God or making them something that God possesses. Does God have this? In the area of sovereignty, if God possesses sovereignty, it is something he can limit because he possesses it, it doesn't define him. And this is critically important in so many areas of doctrine. And that's why we're going to be studying, and I've attributed that attribute of humility that we haven't seen. When I went to school, um, and I read through all of my theology texts, I've been doing this for 20, almost 20 years, about 15 years, and none of them include the attribute of humility. Does God possess humility? That is, does he possess himself? Does he have the capacity to control any part of who and what he is? Is he a true person with self-possession? And it's not there. You go through and you can't find that attribute under any label. It's not there. It was never taught to me in seminary. And so, well, God is sovereign, so he must always be sovereign or he ceases to be God. That is what we have been trained to believe. What that does is now you have a little g God named sovereignty dictating things to the one you call God. Right? Because if it defines who he is, then he must exercise it all the time and he doesn't really control it because it controls him. And this is the fundamental principle that I'm writing about. Is that God has absolute control, absolute sovereignty, which means he's going to control anything, including himself. Okay? That means he can control any attribute you want to throw at me, and I'll say, well, God can limit himself in that area. Can God limit himself in holiness? I'm not saying 
is it can he become sin? Well, maybe I am saying that. Because I think God did become sin for you. How did that happen? That's our first study, really, is answering some questions about Jesus, because that's where we begin the journey to God, is through Jesus Christ. So we're going to start there um, next week, really. And so, can God limit himself in any category? Can he limit what he knows? Yes. Can he grant you privacy? That's really the question. Can God, I'm not saying does God, I said can God grant you privacy? All right, let's go backwards. Genesis. Did God grant Adam and Eve privacy? Privacy. Yes. Why does it appear that he did? <laughs> he doesn't know where Adam is. And he doesn't even know what they've eaten of the tree. Either that or the Bible is trying to deceive you. You have to pick one of these two. Either God granted them privacy or the Bible is in, in its essence deceptive in nature. You have to choose one of those two. There's no in between. So if God granted them privacy in the garden, what does that mean? He had to limit his omnipresence, his omniscience, his holiness, his sovereignty. I can go right through, even his eternality. You see, I've been taught the attributes of God so strongly all my life that I'm pretty sure that I have zero privacy before God. How many of you believe that? You have zero privacy before God. Isn't that odd? It's a mechanism used to try to guilt you that God's watching you into righteousness instead of recognizing that God can grant you privacy and that you will be examined um, at a later date. That just as he came to Adam and says, what have you been up to? That he might come to you one day at the, great, at the judgment seat of Christ and say, what have you been up to? Let's look at it. I say, well, don't you know? Um, the only thing I know is whenever you brought me into your life. When you granted me access. Well, sure, we can go back in time, can't we? Do you have pictures, videos, memories? <laughs> Everything. So he has perfect recall. He can certainly bring it back, and he can give you perfect recall. And we'll sit, but, and, but the very essence of the judgments, both of the righteous and of the wicked, um, is that at that point, everything will be recalled. Just like when God arrives in the garden, he says, where are you? What have you been doing? Did you eat that tree? He granted them privacy. But I've been taught the attributes of God to such an ingrain with them from a youth that I have zero privacy before God because God is omnipresent. He is with, he's always here. Well, he is omnipresent in me now. Why? 
because I invited him into my life. That is a, I've been, I was told um, that's not a really good way to communicate. Ask Jesus into your heart. Well, that's not really accurate. You know, there's not a little Jesus living in your heart. Um, actually, that's not so far off. I've invited God into my life. That's when I trusted in Christ as my Savior, and I said, be my Lord and my God, my Savior, and then something wonderful happened. He gives me his Holy Spirit to do what? Dwell with me. I surrendered my privacy. And now God lives with me. Now, does that mean that God can't access certain things whenever he wants? Yes, he has perfect control and perfect right to exercise his omnipresence, his omniscience, his power, his sovereignty at any point. They are his possessions, and he doesn't have to ask our permission with the exception of one thing. When he says something, he will not fail to do what he says. Even if that means it makes him look weak. What am I referring to? Any promises of God that makes him look weak and makes us look strong. That's a pretty weak position. I stand at the door and knock. And if you don't open the door, I can't come in. And every Calvinist is infuriated by that passage because it makes God look weak and us in the power. What we fail to realize is that that's built off of a principle that God established way back in Genesis at creation. But we have diminished that, as we're going to see um, several weeks from now, uh, he has, we have diminished that concept in, in, and by that we have done injury really to the whole process of salvation by diminishing what God did at creation and how wondrous that is because it required so much humiliation on his part to do that and what it granted to us. Our legal right to open and close that door is not generated from ourselves, but from God's hand. God granted it to us. He is the originator of that right, not ourselves. From our appearance, from our perspective, instead of from, the, from watching the whole story, it looks like we get to control God, how much God can do. And so Jesus says, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Well, that makes God look kind of weak. And it makes the people of Jerusalem look like they're in the power place. But they aren't. Well, they, are, they appear to be, but that right was, had its origination in the edicts of God. And when God declares something, then he will not fail that declaration. Because God can do anything but fail. And so we're going to be answering a lot of theological questions that are going to challenge how we view the attributes of God. I'm not going to tell you that in any of those attributes that God doesn't possess them. <laughs> I, I, 
But I want you to understand they possess, they don't possess him. He possesses them. And that changes everything in our understanding. And let me share with you where, where theologians have gone historically. We've known this has been a problem for a very, very, very long time, um, and maybe even pre-church, of trying to understand God um, and what he is and distinction is attributes. And so here's what some theologians have done. They have said everything here that says God, that, that makes it sound like God is weak, are anthropomorphisms. That means that they are passages that talk about God as if he were a man because you're too small to understand God. And so God um, is just using language that makes it sound like he's just another guy. That's called anthropomorphism. Well, what does that do to your scriptures now? Now you have a problem. Every time it says God does something, you have to ask yourself, does he really do that? Or is that an anthropomorphism? Or is he just talking like he does that, but he doesn't really do that? But just because we have such a small brain, we can't understand him, therefore um, he has to talk to us like he talks to imbeciles. I'm not even going to say children. Well, no. I believe that God reveals himself, and he wants us to know him, and he is communicating truth to us, I believe I can trust what God says. That when God says, I'm really sorry I made man, that that's true. That he regretted something he did. Well, that means that God has to be living in time. You cannot have regrets outside of time. Right? Because if God was sorry he made something, what would you do if you had control of time? I would just go back up and not do it. <laughs> Wouldn't we all love that power? I want to undo all my mistakes. Okay, good luck. <laughs> you kept a record of them all these years, you know. Um, if I could just back up and redo that one thing, you know, then I wouldn't have gotten hurt. and I wouldn't, uh, Well, but we have this concept that God can do that. But God doesn't communicate that he can. Does that mean he can't? It means that he doesn't because somewhere along the line, I believe in Genesis 1.1, he humbled himself and took an, an eternal being that never was confined to time, space, or matter and made himself confined to time, space, and matter not just for our benefit, but um, in his, all of his interactions and all of his works. Um, and in fact, what other people have done is says, well, we're going to go back to that in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to go back to no time. And in fact, in some of your hymnody, you'll have that. We're going to go to where there, time is no more. You know that hymn? Time is no more. We want to go to where time is no more. Well, that's the idea that somehow God is going to abolish time and we'll be enjoying eternity in the, always in the present, not know the passage of time. Well, that's not true in the scriptures. It doesn't ever say that. It says there's going to be, day, there's going to be months for all eternity. There's going to be months. I don't know how you can have months without keeping record of time. I see no place that time is abolished 
And so God has made time, uh, create, or just like he's made man, to be everlasting. But God was from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And we can't deny that. And so how do we rectify these things? And again, we are going to be going into some areas that are going to be troubling to because it's going to be different than maybe how we've thought about the attributes of God because we've always defined God by those attributes and said, and, and so we're going to be talking about Jesus. And, and I've had people leave this church and call me a heretic because I would not answer one question the way they wanted it answered. And it was a hypothetical question at that. Okay, we're going to handle that question. Uh, maybe next week. If not next week, the week. No, next week is our business meeting. We're not going to handle any questions next week. Um, in two weeks, maybe three. And, and so this is something that um, needs to be addressed because there's a lot of things at stake more than just am I a Calvinist or not. Uh, it, there's a lot of things at stake and, and um, of rightly understanding God and that's why we got to start by defining him and realizing that if he is really God, then every attribute that you want to attribute to him has to be something he possesses. And if it's his possession, he can use them, employ them to any degree or non-degree that he chooses because he is a personal being. And by definition, I believe that is what it means to be a personal being, is to have self-possession and the right to choose. You have the authority to control your own self in terms of uh, not only your physical attributes, but your other attributes as well. And we're going to be hopefully discovering some of those things. So that's uh, we're going to be doing things a lot different tonight was very different than what I'm going to be doing I think um, but that hopefully will lay the groundwork. What I am also going to be doing I'm going to share with you, I'm going to be giving you a copy of a chapter at a time um, but I don't want to print a bunch that you don't want um, if I'm going to do this I would like you to write your notes on the copy I'm going to give you of my chapter and give it back to me if you're not willing to do that, um, please let me know, and I'll make fewer copies. But if you're interested in doing that, um, I already have what I've taught tonight written down. All right? Um, I won't teach what I haven't written at this point. So by the time I get to teaching it here, um, we'll have, it's already written. And so I can do this tonight if I wanted to, but I'm not quite ready. So... Um, but if you want to participate in that, that's what I'm asking you to give feedback. And it's not just, I think you're wrong here, because um, you won't ever write that. <laughs> no, no, that's okay too. But it's really, I don't understand this. This isn't well stated. This is confusing me. This is shaking my faith to its core. Now I don't think I believe in God at all. Um, if it's something like that, please write it down, or maybe even better, come talk to me. But um, I, wanna, I, I want a critique. What am I doing wrong? I want a critique. 
And so if you're willing to do that, I, that's, last time in my last book, I sent that to 10 pastors. It got me in a lot of trouble because they didn't do what I asked them to do. I said, please critique this, send it back to me. And instead, they just condemned me as a heretic and kicked me out. Except for two men, Bud Johnson did exactly that. and was a great friend and benefactor for, me, for my writing. And then a couple others. And so if you're interested in doing that, I want to provide those to you, but I would like to get a list of how many. Um, if right now in your mind you say, hey, I've really been interested in seeing this in writing, and, and evaluate it, look up the verses, and write some notes and give it back. Anyone? Seven, eight. Okay. So I'll make about ten copies, because it's, it's not just like a page. It's like a chapter. Uh, and my chapters are not short, <laughs> just like my sermons. So um, I'll be making those copies. If you want to jump in, let me know. I'll make more, but right now I'll, just, I'll do 10 copies. We'll go from there. And if you want it electronically, tell me that. And I'll send it to you electronically. The problem is I want the feedback, so you're going to have to give the feedback to me. If you want to, it's just a lot easier to just write it on paper, and then I can just look through it and keep it instead of me having to go through all these files on my computer. Um, I'd much rather do it that way. But if you don't, I, I want to facilitate you helping. Okay? Good start, I hope. Um, if, if it's discouraging to you and say, I don't ever want to come back, this is like college, this is like going to seminary, just tell me, and I'll try to make it easier. Unless you're like 12, and then I'm not going to make it any easier for you. You're just going to have to up the game. Yes. And the question... Yeah, this is going back. Yes, and the question is of... That's a good comparison, and I often go there when people challenge me on that. I say, well, is that not part of the fruit of the Spirit? And if the Spirit gives you self-control, you think God has it. And so that is a, a text I use a lot with people, with pastors that challenge me on my teaching a little bit, and others as well. I would say our understanding of the fruit of the Spirit is that we need to grow in them, right? but they should be our possession. But the question is, to what extent are you possessing them? So we want you to grow in your love for one another. And because you are a believer, you should have the love of God in you. That's what 1 John says. You can't say you love God and hate your brother. You, that's not consistent. And so you should be uh, having that love as the evidence of your relationship with God. And that's true of all the other ones, all the other attributes. We should be godly. That means having attributes comparable to God's. That what he has, so he has love, we're going to have love, he has grace, mercy, but he also has holiness and righteousness, justice. Um, he has all those things. And then we also understand, even our understanding of salvation, what is the gift of God? What did you say? John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should but have everlasting life. He is giving you eternity, isn't he? That's his attribute, and he's sharing it with you. Okay, so you possess it. And so now the question is, what do you want to do with your eternity? <laughs> Where do you want to spend it? Okay, do you want to have life or do you want to have eternal death? Because eternality is an attribute of God. It is not a definition of God. Uh, Self-existent would mean that he had no beginning, no end. Self-existence means that 
he preexisted everything and it had no beginning. Okay, and so, um, but eternality now can only be used after time was created, so therefore it's an attribute that we use of him. Okay, it's going to be some challenging stuff. I don't expect you to walk away, you know, with glowing because you were in the presence of it or anything like that. Um, but hopefully we're not walking around. I don't want you to be discouraged, disgruntled, or think of me as a heretic. I'd rather you communicate any issues that you see. That's why I do this, and that's why I told you this is a rare thing for me to do, to um, do it in this format. But the last book got me in a lot more trouble. I'm hoping this, this format won't get me in trouble as much. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word and for the disclosure of yourself in it. And we know that our discussion tonight really isn't the way you presented yourself. That you presented yourself by your actions and your relationships, and we look forward to studying those. But Lord, this is how men have studied you, and it seems to have not been, it's caused problems. And Lord, we see the division that is out there and the theological um, messes that have been made as we put our ideas into your word instead of drawing from your word how you would want us to be taught. And Lord, help us to be of childlike faith, to believe that your word is true and dependable and is, says what it means and means what it says. In Christ Jesus' name.